Hi everyone, it's Vicki Basilega from the ASHP section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists, and I'd like you to welcome you to this special episode of Therapeutic Thursdays. Once again, I am excited to share some of the great clinical content that was a part of the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy this highlight and be sure to check back soon for more features. So digital medicine is a field that's concerned with the use of technology for tools of measurement and intervention in healthcare. Digital medicine helps us to engage our patients with their own care and allows them to make better informed decisions. The goals of digital medicine are to increase healthcare access, accuracy, and efficiency, and to reduce errors. This reduced, um, the increase in accuracy and, and decreased errors can also decrease overall healthcare costs, which is one of the pros to using digital medicine. It's also um, convenient for both providers and for patients. It expands early prevention and accurate diagnosis, as well as allows for the management after, um, outside of traditional healthcare settings, as we have seen become um, very important for all of us recently. Some of the cons to using digital medicine, um, possibly the cost or insurance coverage is not all of these technologies are currently covered by insurance companies, which makes them uh, limited for some of our patients, as well as some of them can be a little complex for some of our patients. Um, and the regulations surrounding a lot of these technologies are unclear, which we'll get into in just a little bit. So the, the different domains that consist within digital medicine we have mobile health, which are smart devices and patient monitoring devices. These are defined by the World Health Organization as medical and public health practice supported by mobile devices. Health information technology, these are our electronic healthcare records, electronic prescribing and secure messages. It just involves the electronic, electronic transfer of health information. Wearable devices, which are our fitness trackers and smartwatches. These are autonomous and non-invasive and provide medical monitoring and support over an extended period of time. Telemedicine is often used interchangeably with telehealth, but there's a, a little bit of a difference there. Telemedicine refers to the treatment and diagnosis of patients through remote um, telecommunications. Telehealth is more all-encompassing, includes health-related education, as well as public health and public uh, health administration. Precision medicine, this is um, includes our genetic variant databases. It uses the data that's collected uh, regarding genetics and behavior and environment to personalize treatments and goals for patients. The data is then analyzed to find links between genetic abnormalities and disease states. So within these types of digital medicine, they can contain one or more criteria as defined by the FDA. We have software as a medical device, which is software that's intended for a medical use with hardware that was not intended for a, a medical use. So um, our smartphones would be the hardware not originally intended to be used as a medical device and the software that's downloaded onto it that turns it into a medical device, that software is regulated as a medical device. Advanced analytics um, is when a device can identify, analyze, and use complex data sets to glean information from those um, to provide insights, estimates, and recommendations based on the analysis there. And that is um, required for artificial, artificial intelligence, which is the use of advanced analytics that can imitate um, intelligent behavior and mimics human learning and reasoning. Cloud-based um, 
devices or, tele, or um, digital medicine, com our, our computer networks, servers, storage, applications, and services. This is um, a shared pool of resources with internet-based computing that provides data on demand. Cybersecurity, as we are all familiar with, is very important for all of these um, digital health technologies to keep our patients and their information safe. Some of the um, examples of this include user authentication methods as well as automatic session timeouts. And this is just to make sure that we can prevent unauthorized access or use of information that's stored within these devices. Interoperability is just a device that can exchange and use information through an electronic interface, um, and it can receive that information from multiple different sources. Medical device data systems are hardware or software that can transfer, store, and convert data to display the um, medical device data without controlling or altering the functions of the medical device. So these are our data storing and sharing apps like Dexcom Clarity, which we'll talk about later on. Mobile medical apps are similar to software as a medical device. This is the software that meets the definition of a medical device. It transforms a mobile platform into a regulated medical device or can be an accessory to a regulated medical device. Wireless is obviously just wireless communication via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi to perform at least one function. And then novel digital health is defined as any type of technology that's new, unfamiliar, unseen, that has not been submitted, cleared, or approved by the FDA. So how is all of this technology regulated? So we start with the 21st Century CARES Act, which was passed in 2016. This was intended to allow more digital devices to make it to the market faster um, by revising some of the, the policies for regulating digital devices. So we're looking to expedite the review for breakthrough devices and rare diseases, to expand the least burdensome principle, and also to streamline the process for exempting the 510K requirement. The concern here is for less effective or safe devices making it to the market through more lenient or rush processes. So from here, there are two branches of how um, these technologies can make it to the market. They're either determined by the FDA to be a device or a tool, and how they do that is the intended use of the product. So if the, the product is um, intended to treat, prevent, or diagnose a disease, then it is designated as a device and would be subject to FDA regulation. If it is not intended for any of those purposes, then it's considered a tool and is usually just sent straight to the market. So these devices are classified based on risk, class one to three, three being the highest risk. Most companies aim to um, have their devices classified as a class two because it offers the least amount of risk while still being approved by most insurance companies, which is gonna expand access to patients. The class one offers the least risk, but also the least safety information. Um, so about 50% of all medical devices are class one, and about 95% of those are not regulated by the FDA. So from there, once um, a product is considered a device, then it um, is registered by the FDA and reviewed and must submit post-marketing data. There are three different pathways for them to be approved. 
The first one is the 510K clearance, which I previously mentioned. That's when a device performs a similar function to something that's already on the market. So all the manufacturer has to do is demonstrate that it's at least as effective as the device that's already on the market and no more dangerous. So it's at least as safe. Um, this is for class one and class two products. The, the next pathway is the de novo pathway where the FDA can grant approval for these. These are also class one and class two where the probable benefits outweigh the potential risks. The last one is for class three. This is post-marketing approval and it requires independent review for safety and effectiveness. These are the most, um, they pose the, the highest potential risk for patients. So once we get through that process, then there are some other laws that also apply to all of these technologies. Obviously HIPAA, we wanna make sure that our patient's information stays safe. Um, and it also requires notification if any of their information has been breached. The Federal Drug um, Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act provides that a product must be proven safe and effective. And then the Federal Trade Commission Act um, states that manufacturers can't make false or misleading claims regarding a product. So what is a wearable drug delivery device? Um, this is a hands-free device that's connected to the body and administers medication, but um, instead of something that's continuous, um, like uh, an insulin pump, for example, um, this is for an extended period of time, but it's also a finite period of time. So um, delivering medication over minutes or hours. So the goal of these wearable drug delivery devices um, are to um, ease the administration of some of these medications. Um, often um, the, the point of delivery or the um, needle part is hidden, so it can alleviate the fear of needles that um, a lot of patients have. Um, also, minimizing complexity of administration. Um, that could be uh, either the need for um, a physical person to administer, or a complex process for someone to go through um, and instead use a delivery device, and also to increase um, adherence. Uh, we'll talk about some devices that are on timers, and so um, you're not relying on um, a patient to return um, for an injection. Um, if the delivery device is placed on the patient, it will inject the medication at a pre-specified time. Um, so therefore you're eliminating any concerns at all uh, about adherence. So when you look uh, into uh, wearable drug delivery devices, they're called a lot of different things. Uh, and that's confusing, but it's also a good thing. So the technology sector uh, for these products is obviously booming, uh, lots of innovation going on and you'll see a lot of new jargon in some of the drug products um, that are being FDA approved. So you can see bolus injectors and wearable technology or an on-body infuser. So all of these um, terms that I have on this slide are examples of um, what would be categorized under a wearable drug delivery device definition. So what type of patient is an ideal patient for um, a wearable drug delivery device? Uh, ideally, um, someone who has a, a health literacy to uh, an adequate level to understand um, what the device does and how to um, manage and troubleshoot the device. Um, and also someone with uh, a support system in, in place. 
Oftentimes, these drug delivery devices are being monitored uh, by the healthcare team. And so, um, being able to contact the patient or the patient being able to contact them for questions is important. So, access to a telephone. Um, you know, unfortunately, this day and age, um, I still encounter patients in my clinical practice who don't have um, access to Wi-Fi or a telephone. So I think that that's something important to keep in mind as we talk about all of this innovative technology. Uh, the best product um, can't be implemented if we don't have that infrastructure, the patient doesn't have access uh, to uh, the, the building blocks that are needed for it to function. Um, Anyone who goes home with one of these wearable drug delivery devices, you can assume that uh, they don't need to be physically seen by the provider uh, before that drug is being administered. Um, so if there is any type of monitoring required, such as lab work, that could be done remotely, um, and also a physical examination wouldn't then be necessary. Um, I work with a lot of immunocompromised patients in my practice, uh, and especially while well, we have cold and flu season now, of course, um, we wanna minimize patients' exposure. Mm -hmm. And we are in the middle of a pandemic. And so we are looking for innovative ways to care for our patients virtually. So any of our patients who are at higher risk for infection, um, any of these wearable drug delivery devices um, have been a great option. Um, also patients with transportation issues, if you live in, uh, a rural area where you have to drive a while. Um, I live in Wisconsin and we are approaching um, our fourth season of winter. And it's hard for me sometimes to get to work, uh, let alone someone who lives a few hours away from um, a cancer center to come in for treatment. Um, and then also depending on what uh, you know drug we're administering, Sometimes the timing might need to be on a weekend and that can be inconvenient uh, for patients and also uh, for facilities who may not um, have open uh, facilities on the weekend. So these are all ideas for patients who a wearable drug delivery device might um, be a great idea. So I'm gonna use one of the uh, now kind of classic examples that we have here in oncology. So uh, when patients are administered, uh, typically cytotoxic chemotherapy, um, their white blood cells are often affected and they're at higher risk for infection. So what we do is we administer uh, growth factors to our patients. And one of those medications that we use is pegfilgrastim. Um, that is available as a pre-filled syringe. So um, patients can receive it um, injected by a healthcare provider or be taught to um, uh, self-inject at times, depending. Um, on the situation, but that needs to be administered a full day after their chemotherapy regimen. So um, what um, a wearable drug delivery device was developed for this medication about five years ago, and that's called the OnPro. So it's the same medication and the same dose, um, but what it is, is it is packaged in um, a device that is attached to the patient um, with an adhesive and set on a timer uh, to inject the medication um, over an extended period of time, about 45 minutes at home um, at a set time um, after application. And this is a device where, um, at least at my institution, we don't have, um, we're not letting our patients apply these. It does take um, a healthcare provider 
um, to uh, apply the device and set it, um, but some education for the patient before they go home. So this is, you can see on the right, that's a picture of what the on-body um, injector looks like. And to the left, which, you know, I don't expect anyone to be able to see, I just wanted to demonstrate um, the specific instructions involved in applying the product, setting the product, troubleshooting, um, the whole gamut of directions. So uh, this is an example of a wearable um, drug device that requires, uh, I would say, teamwork. So. Um, a lot to go through with the patient on how to troubleshoot it. And you can see on the actual device, there's a 1-800 number for them to call um, if something would happen. Uh, but also, I know at my cancer center, we also provide um, the patient with our phone number and we would try and also help um, them walk through this. So the patient would have to uh, monitor uh, the device, know when it was set to inject the medication, and also troubleshoot any issues if it would perhaps uh, start leaking or um, the button's flashing and it's not emptying. Uh, things do go wrong occasionally with these devices, uh, but the, the pro and the plus to this device is that patients can have it attached um, on the same day that their um, chemotherapy is being infused, and then they have uh, the option to stay at home and they don't need to come back to the cancer center for a separate injection. So that's really um, the um, new LASTA on pro uh, system. So we do have a fair amount of um, patients who do take advantage of this uh, if um, they're obviously if their insurance plan will cover it and they're an appropriate candidate. Um, and meet most of the criteria that I reviewed on um, the earlier slide. So um, wearable drug delivery devices certainly aren't um, limited to oncology, so I did want to um, highlight another one that is used in uh, primary care. Um, this is the Evolocumab um, Pushtronics device. And this is a medication that's used for um, an inherited condition um, to lower LDL. And this is a once monthly injection. Um, but what's interesting about this one is that uh, the patient actually is, or caregiver, is charged with uh, loading the syringe and also applying the device to themselves correctly to receive the infusion. Um, so that's an extra added layer uh, that uh, you would need to have the patient be confident with and the appropriate health literacy to be able to successfully. Um, apply this medication, but this also eliminates um, a trip into uh, the primary care office or um, the infusion clinic. Here is a graphic of what this device looks like. Um, so and a button, a large button for the patient to push once they've applied it um, to their body. And um, I think it's another great example of what these wearable drug delivery devices look like. So again, um, there are a lot of patient considerations um, for these. Uh, we've touched on health literacy, uh, but also, you know, the very first step is adhesive allergy. 
Uh, I think it's easy to forget that most of these devices are applied or held to the body using some type of adhesive. So if a patient has any type of historical allergy to that, um, I know in some of the uh, studies looking at these devices to get approved, um, patients with adhesive allergy were excluded um, during that evaluation period. So something to keep in mind on the, the allergy list. Um, and then also uh, the application. Can the patient reach where these need to be applied? Is their sight on the body appropriate for um, the device? Uh, and being able to clean and self-care for that um, injection site. The monitoring and troubleshooting is a big part. Um, I think that, you know, as long as most patients have a telephone number or a contact on who to call for direction, that has um, been sufficient, at least with my experience with the um, OnPro device. Um, and then instructing them on bathing and travel. You know, can you take showers while you're wearing these devices? And um, are you going to set off the, the security scanners with these devices if you walk through them? Most of these uh, products do need to be then removed from the body, and then what do you do with them? And so uh, sharps disposal, appropriate disposal um, is very important. Um, and I can't um, stress the uh, importance of uh, provider support, uh, be that the physicians or even the nurses or uh, the pharmacists and helping patients um, manage these devices if they do go home um, with them. All right, so um, I'd like to touch on some of the applications that are available and medication adherence um, is a issue uh, in this country. I think any pharmacist knows that um, it's one of our, our core hopes for patients that for the correct intervention we make and the, the prescription that we give them, uh, that they take it as directed. Um, and this relates to medication errors and also adverse events. Um, and unfortunately, um, only about 50% uh, of drugs prescribed for chronic um, diseases were adhered to by patients um, in developed nations, according um, to the author below. So medication adherence, if you go to your app store and you look for um, medication adherence apps, there are hundreds. Uh, there will be thousands soon. So. Digital adherence aids are a wonderful idea, um, and smartphones and apps, um, you know, can help tackle this challenge. Uh, but keep in mind, there are a lot to choose from, and they all do different things. Uh, but to summarize, the strategy for um, around adherence and what adherence apps do is that they focus on reminders, uh, behavioral changes, uh, and also. So uh, those apps are uh, designed to be used. So how can you help your patients um, choose an adherence app? Um, there are so many out there, um, and from a patient perspective, um, they're looking at access. Is this something that's free? Um, can I download it? Is it easy to use? Um, what does it look like? Um, is it easy for me to interact with? And I think as Pharmacists, what we're hoping for is that um, whatever application that they uh, choose, they're not downloading something that's going to provide them with um, incorrect information. We want applications that are evidence-based. Um, hopefully a medical professional was involved in developing them. 
um, and the strategies that the app is using have been validated to um, improve adherence and um, education. So from my experience in oncology, some of our large um, cancer groups um, have developed apps for keeping track of cancer medications and also appointments, um, et cetera. So at least it's an, an organization that is well recognized and um, clinicians were involved in, in developing some of the content of those apps. Uh, but I would really caution um, patients interested in using these apps to do some research and make sure that um, it's a utilized app, um, it gets good reviews, and it is created by uh, medical professionals, or even talk to their uh, treatment team before selecting an app. So barriers to using any of these apps, um, of course, is, like I mentioned, ease of use and cost. You know, what, um, what do these apps look like, and are they actually helpful? Um, some of these factors that we um, can associate with adherence sometimes aren't addressed in every application. Um, every patient is different and every patient has a different um, scenario. They come with a you know, different socioeconomic background, different personal beliefs, um, even different um, work shifts or things that typical um, adherence apps might not um, address. Many of these apps also rely on patients to self-populate information, such as their medication list, um, when they take medications, and how often. And so transcription errors can occur, uh, and patients might uh, not upload the correct information. And so starting off with the wrong information, the adherence app is obviously not going to uh, be successful. And for the majority of these apps, they're not um, associated with perhaps the healthcare system that you may um, work at or uh, one of your patients may go to. Um, integrating this data into electronic health records, I think is a big hurdle for all the um, digital applications we're talking about. As Betsy mentioned earlier, you know, some apps require emailing healthcare information, uh, which might not be over a secure network or you know, protected information um, to their providers or even printing out their healthcare data. Um, ideally, I think some of these um, apps, it would be uh, the best situation if they could download directly into the electronic health record, um, but there are also issues surrounding that. So um, just something to think about, um, how do you get that information from that application to the people who need to see it? How does the pharmacist see that information and how does um, the treatment team? Um, I've had patients hand me their phones Sometimes that's what happens uh, and you have to um, navigate through um, something that you might not be familiar with, but that's obviously not an ideal situation um, to, to accurately share adherence data. Uh, also, to, to use these apps, you know, patients need to have um, smartphones or tablets uh, and some patients do not have um, those devices. Um, some of my older patients, um, they're more tech savvy than I am, but some don't want these. Um, so taking um, an oral chemotherapy agent at home, adherence application, um, they might not have a smartphone or be interested in using one, and so that's not a tool um, that we can use for our patient. Um, and there have been studies looking at, you know, who 
who is more likely to use these apps and who is more likely to um, use these devices. So we know that patients with low health literacy um, aren't, are less likely to use um, this health information technology. Um, and we have data showing that minorities and patients with lower socioeconomic status are less likely to use some of these patient um, portals. And the users of this mobile technology are typically younger, higher educated, higher median income, so they have um, access to uh, this technology. So again, something to think about. Um, I've been involved in piloting some of these apps and technology um, in my workplace, and we've always provided uh, either the um, smartphone or iPad to the patient um, at no cost if they do not have it in order to use the technology. So something to think about from a broader implementation um, standpoint. So that nicely segues into uh, digital therapeutics. Um, this is also something called digiceuticals, um, and this is a uh, term for digimeds is all, ingestible technology. So this is medications with sensors that are actually um, incorporated into the actual tablet or co-encapsulated with a commercially available product. Uh, and digiceuticals is a, a fascinating area of development. Um, the FDA is involved in regulating these digiceuticals. So as um, Betsy mentioned earlier in the presentation, there um, are a variety of things that are either regulated or unregulated, but um, the FDA does have um, a digital health software certification program, and digiceuticals um, have gone through that approval process. Works is that um, the medication is ingested and the medication has that sensor um, either embedded within it or it's co encapsulated with it. And in the digestive system, that sensor is exposed. Um, and as it's exposed, it dissolves. And when it dissolves, it's activated. Um, and a signal is actually sent to an external patch that the patient wears um, on their abdomen and senses when that. Uh, digiceutical was ingested. So um, that, that signal is sent via Bluetooth um, to some type of application, usually um, on a mobile phone. And then that app, once it um, you know is connected via Bluetooth, can send that information to a data portal. Um, so this is actual tracking of ingestion of um, tablets or capsules um, using um, digiceuticals. So this is a really innovative um, technology, um, something that we may see more of uh, in the future. Uh, I think that what I've seen is that um, these portals, but they are also uh, incorporating some of that other biometric data that some of the apps that Betsy mentioned covered. So just keep in mind that uh, Sometimes we're adding on functionality to apps so that they are an all-in-one product. Um, and sometimes that might make um, some of the aspects not work as well. So a little bit more of the timeline of digital medicines. Um, we do have a product, the Abilify MySite, which was approved to treat um, schizophrenia in 2017. Um, and that came after the FDA approved um, digital medication sensors in 2012. I um, was involved in a pilot at my institution looking at co-encapsulated um, oral chemotherapy um, to treat colon cancer in some of our patients. 
Um, and we also not only tracked adherence, but we also tracked um, side effects and symptoms. So it was very interesting to be involved in um, from a firsthand uh, perspective um, and see how uh, that actually would be implemented in cancer patient population. So what are the goals of these digiceuticals or digimeds? Um, we're looking to um, obviously increase adherence. So these are um, first and um, foremost an adherence aid, um, aid. We want to verify that um, what we prescribe to the patient, um, they are actually ingesting and um, taking as prescribed. Um, that would translate into for cancer care, hopefully improving their outcomes. Um, and decreasing hospitalizations um, and adverse effects. So why should anyone consider using digiceuticals? I think that these are really ideally suited for complex regimens um, and adherence to regimens where there is a cure involved. So for example, in early stage cancer, that's possible to be um, potentially cured. Um, another good example from infectious disease uh, might be hepatitis um, and uh, taking a regimen that might cure um, that viral infection. So complex regimens, patients are confused. Um, we might have dose changes and we don't want to under or overdose. And patients are, you know, charged with self-managing these medications. And if they take them incorrectly, um, they're going to have uh, increased toxicities, perhaps adverse effects, which could result in um, discontinuing the medication. Um, and obviously, the more side effects patients have, um, the more at risk they are for having to, um, you know, be admitted to the hospital. So really keeping track of and adhere appropriate adherence to these complex uh, medication regimens using a digiceutical is the goal um, in preventing all of those adverse effects. Also, for some of these adherence tracking apps, um, outcome data uh, has been um, proposed as something that could be tracked. So you could actually track adherence rate um, for our cancer patients. Are they completing their cycles um, as uh, prescribed? How often are they utilizing um, healthcare services? So when are they um, pressing them, uh, contacting the team, asking questions, reporting side effects? Um, and patient safety, you know, uh, are we decreasing side effects and patient satisfaction scores? Do they feel safer um, using um, an app like this? So I think this is an interesting area for research as well, all tied to um, improving health outcomes in our patients. All right, so kind of segueing back to um, how would you pick an adherence app or how would you pick um, even what app to use? Um, what we're seeing um, in the landscape of healthcare is uh, uh, insurance providers or healthcare um, benefits administrators uh, developing digital health formularies. So similar to the way that we would develop a medication formulary, uh, they are developing a list of technology and software apps um, or devices that are preferred um, to prevent, manage, or treat their um, uh, medical conditions. So this is um, an institution, you know, using a structured process to review um, these apps. Um, are they clinically effective? What are the uh, user experiences? Is this a financial um, value uh, for the company? Um, and really allows employers to tailor uh, the types of software that they want their um, employees to be using. 
Uh, so most of us, if we work for hospital health systems, you know, we have wellness programs, um, various goals for health. They want everyone to stay healthy, to decrease healthcare utilization, um, and various, you know, incentives offered if we meet certain health metrics. Um, so using some of these digital um, apps could be a way for employers to accomplish that and, you know, decrease um, healthcare costs. So developing digital health formularies is something um, that I think we're going to be seeing more of um, as, uh, as, as we evolve. So again, um, this is an, uh, an institution or a group or a company providing that list of um, approved um, applications. Uh, hopefully that would streamline the coverage and the cost. So if you're going to say this is a preferred app, um, for example, we want you to use um, this diabetic um, glucose monitoring app or product. Um, who's going to pay for that? Um, how, how will they cover? Um, cover products, they might maybe choose a product to add to formulary that has the corresponding app. Uh, so that's interesting implications for uh, medication formularies um, in the future is if they have um, some of those mobile health applications associated with them. And then also, again, the goal is integrating data into those electronic health records. So applications that provide that technology might be preferred uh, for um, a digital health formulary to streamline uh, that communication of data. There are some challenges to this, um, and again, integrating into the electronic health record. Um, sound like a, a broken record saying that so many times, but it really is um, a key part of the success of, of utilizing some of these applications. Um, and what is that formulary review process or mechanism? I think um, the institutions or the um, benefit managers that are doing this already, um, they've developed their own review mechanism, but um, there aren't any rules on that. Um, and reimbursement and payment, you know, are, are those pathways clear? And then also above all else, you know, we have to ensure equal access to these technologies for everyone who's involved. So to summarize um, future directions, I think what I'm seeing now in my area of clinical practice um, is a lot of increase in incorporating um, diagnostic and drug delivery devices and applications in clinical trials. So we're seeing more and more clinical trials, even just using applications to track uh, side effects. Um, we call those PROs or patient reported outcomes. Uh, commonly used in oncology, but also in other disease states. So um, not only are you seeing clinical trials using um, new drugs, but also devices. So keep an eye out for that as you're looking at um, emerging data in your practice area. Um, there's evolving regulations. So the FDA is continuing to evolve um, and expanding and clarifying their role in device and mobile health application approvals and applications to clinical practice. So Obviously, if the FDA is approving certain um, devices or technology, it's more likely to be incorporated into clinical practice. So um, keeping an eye on what the FDA is doing um, and their website and how they're handling um, technology um, is something that I would recommend. And then the emergence of these digital health formularies. So again, these are meant to hopefully guide the selection and utilization of these um, electronic health apps. Uh, but also keeping an eye on um, 
you know, which ones are they picking? And is the vetting process, um, you know, is it involving making sure that healthcare providers are creating these apps? And how much is it going to cost in access? Is it improving access? Um, that's the goal. So um, keep an eye out for the um, digital health formularies and how that's going to impact um, incorporating technology into the care of our patients. So our key takeaways um, at the very end, um, we have uh, regulation. So our themes are regulation. So the regulation of these digital health apps and wearable drug devices continues to evolve. Um, integration, integrating these apps into routine clinical practice. You know, how comfortable are you with um, helping a patient um, learn how to use one of these, these apps and also incorporating into electronic health records? That's what's going to help us optimize digital health technology. And then also access. You know, we need to have equal access, um, affordability, so that all patients can benefit um, from digital health applications. Thanks so much for listening into today's episode from the 2020 Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. It's features and content like this that make the ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting the place to learn and to take your practice to the next level. Be sure to join us in December for more great clinical content.